Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. Today, we're going to discuss how here at Fort Capital, we underwrite deals and ultimately how we create an investment memo that LPs love once we find a deal uh, that we want to do. So we'll start on the underwriting side. Fort Capital is constantly in the process of underwriting and underwrites hundreds of deals each year. Over the life of our company, we've probably looked at thousands of deals, but ultimately we only do a few of them and most of them never see the light of day. So whether you're new to the industry or you're a seasoned professional, this podcast should outline our underwriting process from start to finish and hope that it helps you in kind of your future endeavors. So just to get started, what is underwriting? Underwriting is the process of identifying the degree of risk for a deal before you actually assume that risk. Our perspective on it is how to underwrite, obviously, the value of a piece of real estate. And the ultimate goal as an investor is to understand kind of your circle of competence, which can ultimately help you get to quick no's or yeses. I think a fatal flaw, if you don't understand your boundaries, is the time spent that you underwrite deals that should have been an obvious no from the beginning. Because like I said, we're doing hundreds of these a year. If we're spending lots of time on things that ultimately end up becoming a no, you're that much further away from getting a yes, which, you know, on a, I would say in a good year, you're probably doing one to 2% of the deals that you ultimately underwrite, maybe even less than that. So getting to a quick no is useful. And knowing your circle of competence, your asset class, the markets that you're in, the, the more you know them, the quicker you can get to kind of quick answers. So some of the variables that contribute to the value and how we look at underwriting. So first off, each asset is different. It has its own unique set of variables, but some of the standard variables are kind of what I want to talk about today and real specifically to industrial, which is what we mainly focus on. So I'll go through these pretty quickly. Some of them are super obvious, uh, maybe some not so obvious, but we really start with what's kind of the market that we're in and the demographics and trends of that market. If it's something that we're doing for the first time or it's a market we're entering, obviously a lot more time is spent learning that market. And that's things that you can find on the internet, that's driving the market, that is talking to brokers about, you know, lease rates and transactions that have occurred or that might be occurring or tenants that are moving in or a development that hasn't been released yet that someone might knows about. On the internet, you might be searching CoStar or LoopNet for comps and reading articles about the area and why is it an area that's going to flourish you know, after you've acquired the property, you, you know, you want to buy into areas that are growing and robust, not areas that are kind of on the decline. So we really try and get an understanding of the market demographics and trends. And again, if you've already been in a market or have investments in that market, then it's really easier to understand what's going on. And if you own assets in that market, you should have internal data that helps kind of validate a lot of your assumptions. Second is just understanding what the purchase price is. 
or solving for what the purchase price should be. So just because a broker tells you this is what it costs, obviously that doesn't mean what you're going to pay. And so often when we're underwriting deals, uh, we are solving for what is the price that we are able to pay. Um, and obviously anything that you can buy for under that is just extra cream on top. We look at all the expenses. So the expenses that the current owner is experiencing. And then we really look at what expenses on our end can we cut without necessarily destroying value at the property. So, you know, things like landscaping, things like routine maintenance, property management costs, leasing costs, and things of that nature. And so we're looking at what's currently being spent and how might we be able to improve that. And then also, if you're buying a building with gross leases and you intend on converting them to triple net leases over time, what expenses are going to be able to be a pass-through and how can you, um, you know, again, lower expense enough to where it still gives you plenty of room to grow rent. The third on the expense side is really just modeling out. If you're looking at things over like a five-year period, which is what we typically do, kind of industry standard, we kind of use a baseline of a 3% increase in expenses annually that kind of runs through the model. We take a hard look at taxes and insurance, um, especially in Texas. Property taxes have been growing really significantly more in the last five years than uh, ever before. And so really thinking about what are the future tax implications from a property tax standpoint, and then dialing in insurance as well, which as anybody knows in the country, we're in a hard insurance market right now, meaning insurance costs are rising really quickly, something that's obviously uncontrollable as a real estate owner, mostly. I mean, there's things that real estate owners can do by being a good steward of the property, showing that they're a great operator that might help lower their premium a little bit less than some of their competition, but overall prices are increasing for everybody. Um, and some of those numbers have been become pretty drastic. So we wanna get a good understanding of how that plays into the equation. Then we really wanna look at all the tenants in the building, the number of them, what their lease duration is, how long they've been there, feedback from the current landlord on how they've actually been as tenants. Are, they, are there tenants that are frequently late? Um, are there tenants that pay on time? Are there tenants that just kind of don't abide by the lease? So we really want to know who they are, how many of them there are, how long their leases go for, what's in their lease that might be different. Again, if you own a building with 35 different tenants, not all leases are created equal. Each one might have its own provisions. So we really want to get under get a good understanding of that. And a lot of that information can be found in a rent roll, in tenant interviews, and just talking with the landlord and maybe the current property manager. The next is understanding where rent is today versus what the market is. So a lot of what we buy are what we call value add. And in a lot of circumstances, the value add is marked marking rents or taking what's currently being charged and over time bringing that to a market rate that's equal to kind of comparables in the area. And so we often look for properties that are mispriced and not bringing in enough rent and we think they can bring more. And then if we run that out over five years, again, we typically, once we have underwritten to a point of stabilization, meaning that rents are where we think they should be, we'll typically grow them at 3% a year kind of there going forward. And that's very typical in leases. On like a five-year commercial lease, you very often see 
uh, anywhere from a three to five percent bump in rents year over year as the lease continues to go through. We also do a strong dive into kind of what we call tenant renewal probability. So how what's the probability that a tenant is going to renew? And there's lots of everybody can use their own numbers. We use anywhere from 50 to 75%. We don't always often assign the same probability to each tenant. For example, like if we know a tenant is going to be leaving, obviously we would assign zero renewal probability to them. But for tenants where we don't have a great idea, that can fall anywhere from 50 to 75%. But most of the time we underwrite at about a 75% probability renewal kind of across the board. And Again, knowing how long a tenant's already been in the building, conversations that you might have during tenant interviews or with property managers can also help give you an idea of what kind of renewal probability percentage you want to assign to that deal. And with that, we also assign what we call lease up timing. So if something isn't going to renew, how long is it going to take to lease that vacancy? Or if we're buying something with vacancy already in it, what's our projection of how long it would take to lease those units? And those can fall in kind of buckets of six months, nine months, and 12 months. And that's usually driven on the size. Obviously, the larger size that a uh, space is, it typically takes longer. Tenants that are at much larger sizes are typically Uh, One, there are fewer of them. And two, they are in the market well before they actually need to move. So whereas where a smaller tenant might start looking at space, you know, three to six months before they actually need it, big tenants can sometimes be out in the market a year or two before. So we really try and figure out what the lease up timing is. And we usually assign something like a six month, a nine month or a 12 month lease up period for that specific space. We look at the current vacancies, obviously. We want to ask ourselves, why are they vacant? Uh, Why haven't they been leased up? And then obviously, again, get a good idea of what we're going to do differently to get those leased up. And a lot of times that's something like a lot of landlords, if they're strapped for cash, a previous tenant leaves, the landlord doesn't have the capital to go in and clean up the space and put in new carpet and put up sheetrock and wipe the walls to have a space ready to go. It could be poor marketing on behalf of the leasing agent. I mean, there's lots of reasons why things stay vacant. Maybe they're asking too much for the space. And so we really want to find out why our vacancy is vacant and why are we going to be able to do something differently than the previous owner could. We look at CapEx requirements. What are the capital expenditures that we're going to have to make on the building? Are we going to have to put a new roof on? Are we going to have to paint the parking lot stripes? Are we going to have to update landscaping? Are we going to have to do foundation work? There's lots of things that fall in the CapEx bucket, and we just want to have a good understanding of what our CapEx exposure is going to be. And again, during the underwriting kind of due diligence phase of doing a deal, uh, you'll typically during underwriting try and come up with a general number, and then you're really validating that during due diligence and getting hard numbers and hard bids. Obviously, the longer that you have during underwriting to get solid numbers, the better. But often during underwriting, you're making more generalizations of what it what you think it's going to be. And then you're dialing that in over time. And also, again, if you own lots of the asset class that you're buying, you should have in-house data on what your CapEx expenditures are, co- are costing and be able to apply those to the deal that you're looking at. 
We look at tenant improvement costs. What are tenants going to require in this building to make leases happen? And again, you can find that through internal data. You can find that through asking brokers or property managers or others in the market what they're seeing, what they're offering in TIs. Uh, Because again, if you're going to make your space competitive, you need to be able to offer the proper TI allowance, especially in a down market where it's what we call a tenant market, uh, that number can rise substantially if there's a lot of available space in a market, basically who can make the best deal for the tenant. And that comes down to lease rate, the amount of TI they're getting. So we want to know what our TIs are going to cost so we can budget for those. We underwrite the capital structure of what the deal is going to look like, how it's going to be financed. Um, There's lots of ways to make deals change based on how you finance them. You know, we take the approach that uh, debt is a tool and when used uh, appropriately, it's a really good tool, Um, but we never want to take a deal that's probably not a deal unless you finance it really, really creatively to make a deal out of it. That's typically where you can get in trouble. It's also where you can make some outsized returns, but it's also typically where you can get in trouble if things don't go right. So we want to understand our financing situation what our debt terms might look like, what the amount of equity we're putting down is going to look like, if there's any MES component. And then after that, we'll run lots of refinance scenarios, which is once we have stabilized the property or added the value that we believe we can add, what might a refinance look like? Now, that's where you start looking out into the future and nobody really knows the future, but there are some general assumptions that it's safe to make if you are you know, looking at making a refinance happen in the first, call it 12, really 18 to 36 months of owning something. So we'll run multiple assumptions, multiple cases, and try and figure out what a refinance might look like somewhere down in the future. For those, and this is really an underwriting tactic that a lot of LPs like to see if you're not a permanent holder, but is what does an exit scenario look like? You know, kind of industry standard is looking at things on like a five, seven, or 10-year outlook. You know, candidly, I've always struggled with this because nobody ever knows what the world's going to look like five, seven, or 10 years from now. I mean, if you had asked people in February if the whole country would be shut down by the end of March, they probably wouldn't have known that. So that's 30 days when you think about five, seven, 10 years. But it is practice to take the best assumptions that you know how to take and try and depict what an exit might look like. And if you've exited lots of deals, obviously you can pull on that. You can look at deals that are exiting in the market today. Very often what's industry practice is to increase the cap rate that you plan on selling at by 50 to 100 basis points, just in case rates go up. Very often uh, people aren't going to take your deal as seriously if you know, you're dropping the cap rate five years out. That could very well happen, but to make that part of your assumption is usually painting a much rosier picture. And so typically you'll see people adjust 50 to 100 basis points above where they think they'll exit just so that they have that room uh, margin of safety. So just a couple other important uh, or key details that some people typically miss and mistakes that, that we've made along the way. 
Again, some of this I've already discussed, but I'll just go through it one more time. Not paying enough attention to CapEx terms and assumptions. Again, it's sometimes hard to do because if you're underwriting something, you don't have all the answers of how much something's going to cost. You can estimate all you want, but until you've gotten hard bids, which often a lot of folks don't spend time on getting hard bids until after they're under contract, then a lot of times people miss low on what CapEx really is going to be. Examples of that could be the age and the condition of the HVAC or the roof, uh, the condition of the parking lot, and other things. Not analyzing details and clauses within existing tenant leases. I think uh, one thing that's very boring to do, but it's something that I highly recommend whether you're buying a building with one tenant or a hundred tenants. And again, this is related to commercial is really understanding how the leases are written, what they're saying and what that ultimately means. Again, not all leases are created equal. A lot of them have their own special provisions and things tailored to that tenant. Leases are negotiating at, are negotiated at different points in time. So you could have a tenant that, you know, if we went back to the great financial crisis that might have negotiated a lease in 2010 on a 10-year lease, that was probably more favorable to the tenant than maybe another tenant that joined the building in 2017 or 18 when it was probably more of a landlord's market. I think the biggest thing that a lot of folks, uh, you know, especially early on, forget about is your office is a source of a ton of information. And so communicating with the team, asking questions, pulling on data that already exists in the office, that is often some of the best data that you can get. And just sometimes, you know, we even have to remind ourselves um, that we hold a lot of information and we should take advantage of all of that. And obviously, the more opportunities and more investments that we make, that's adding to more precise data. And it continues to be almost its own flywheel where the more you buy and the more you learn, uh, the more acute you can make your decisions on what to buy and what not to buy. And then probably the last is, um, and I think everybody suffers from this bias, which is not really telling yourself what are the true downsides of this deal. When you're underwriting or investing, it's really easy to think of all the reasons why you should do it and kind of gloss over or uh, not take seriously the reasons why you shouldn't do it. And so at Fort, we have an investment committee uh, made of four or five people, and that is a time to really poke holes in the deal and really stress test it. So poking as many holes in the deal, uh, rewriting our assumptions to try and find out how bad could this get before we're losing money. There's just lots of questions that you should ask yourself. And Again, it's much easier to want to highlight a deal and not uh, downplay a deal. And so, again, we really try and focus on poking as many holes in the deal as we can before we've made our final decisions. So kind of how we think about the process, the first step is underwriting. Uh, this is when we start evaluating a piece of real estate and understanding if it's worth purchasing. At the beginning of the process, you don't have all the facts. You have to make a lot of assumptions. And as you move forward through the process, you try and remove as many unknown variables and assumptions as you started with. And again, experience, track record, already being in the market, already owning similar like assets should help you turn what's unknown into more of a known deal so that by the time you make that decision, 
a lot of that decision is predicated on hard evidence and facts and not just guesses. This process can take, it can be short, it can be long, but again, the goal, if you're getting to a no, is you should be able to get to no's quick so that you can move on to the next deal. Finding opportunities to buy, in a lot of cases, it's a numbers game. If you're only going to buy one in every 100 deals that you look at, you want to get through those 100 deals quickly so that you can find the one that fits your model. And if you're spending all your time working on deals that never end up happening, it's just prolonging when you're going to get to a yes. So it's really hard to say how long underwriting should take. But I would say on a quick look, we can do it in a couple of hours, uh, maybe a day at the most. And even if you get through that first day and you're, you like what you see, you can still go on a, a few more days, even weeks, validating some of those assumptions. And sometimes you get an answer that you didn't want to hear, and that's when you move on. So it's really hard to determine what the typical length of underwriting is. But for that first look to say like, yes, we should be spending some more time digging into this, assuming that you've collected enough information up front, you should be able to make that decision anywhere from a couple hours to a couple of days and and not much longer than that. Where do we get a lot of this data? Uh, We get it from, like I said earlier, market experts, property managers, leasing agents, tenant rep brokers, other owners in the area, talking to tenants, talking to businesses in the area, pulling public city data on an area, demographics. There's lots of places to pull information from, CoStar, LoopNet. And so we pull in from every resource we can. So where does the information live? when we're underwriting and how does it get communicated to the team and to those uh, not on the team. So we utilize our internal operating system that we call FOS, which is a software that we built to keep all of our documents and models and due diligence in one place. The system allows team members to tailor the information, find the information, share the information, and most importantly, be able to retrieve the information in a way that's easy to search. We generate checklists so nothing gets missed during our underwriting process. We make sure that we have always kind of checked off every box and asked every question that we like to ask. And for each property under consideration, we begin populating data into our base models. And as we eliminate assumptions and expand our knowledge, this model expands and adapts to each specific property. I mean, the the goal is really to get smarter after each deal you do after each deal you underwrite, understanding why things don't work, make things that work more obvious. And so again, just because you don't do 99 of 100 deals, you should be learning a lot from why those other 99 didn't work. Some of them are super obvious answers, like the price is just crazy high, but there's a lot of other things that would change the deal. And that's why some people are willing to pay one price for something and some people aren't. Maybe they just look at it differently and, you know, time will tell who's right. So assuming a deal's for sale, once you have underwritten a property and your team has kind of given it the thumbs up, really the next step is going to be to start putting in your offer and going under contract and proceeding on with due diligence. So kind of some final thoughts on underwriting. Remember, you're evaluating risk, so it is important to be honest with the information you are given. This will create greater certainty and ultimately eliminate variables. Consider adding a risk-adjusted return similar to a realistic downside case. This helps you predict the bad times like economic fluctuations. 
Don't forget the importance of relationships with capital partners and lenders. Once these partners begin trusting your underwriting and get familiar with your process, you'll start to reap the benefits. Be open to new opportunities and think outside the box, especially in these uncertain times where we are experiencing a lag in data. If you wait for opportunities to fall into the pipeline or wait for things to return to normal, you might miss some several great opportunities. Again, we encourage thoughtful disagreements. We like to play devil's advocate, and so we're prepared for any scenario, even the bad ones. The downfall of decision-making is when everyone in the room says yes. So next, I'm going to talk about once you've underwritten a deal and you've put it under contract and you are sending a deal out to investors, how do you take all the work that you just did to get to that decision of yes and then present it to an investor in a way that would get them to want to do the deal? So at Four Capital, we've written countless investment memos to raise money over the last 15 years. A great investment memo should be written in a fashion that virtually anyone with basic business knowledge can understand. Warren Buffett often talks about writing his annual letters with the intended audience being his two sisters, both who are savvy, but certainly not financial wizards. Keeping the memo simple, transparent, consistent, and to the point is kind of our best policy. We're constantly learning and evolving better ways to present the information to our investors, and we treat our memos as representations of who we are as a company. We take a lot of pride in making these the best possible memos, and we highly encourage others to do the same. At the end of the day, it's a view into your company, how you think, how you operate, and a polished memo goes a long way. So I'm going to go through kind of the sections and the things that we think about presenting, Again, there's probably things that we could do better. Uh, these are what we have refined and learned over the years as kind of best practices. Um, but again, these aren't the only ways to do things. This is just how we do it. So we do a company overview and our track record at the very beginning. So who the hell is Fort Capital and why do we deserve your trust and hard-earned dollars? We show who our core team is that'll be working on it. We show our track record of the deals that we've done to date and their performance history, and we kind of go asset by asset. Then we'll like to layer in an investment overview. For those that only like to read the first page of a deal, they can leave this page with all the highlights of the deal, financial summary and returns, why we're buying it, and why we think they should invest. This is what we call our investment overview or executive summary of the next nine steps that I'll go through. So first is we present our reasons to acquire. What are the four to five key reasons that we're acquiring the property? What is already working for the property? What are we going to do to improve it? And how are we gonna add value? This is often where we get the most questions. Why are you buying? And again, we put this on our executive summary and we also spell it out in the longer draft. Again, our reasons to acquire. We do a location overview, so details about the submarket, what's going on in the market, and where our property kind of sits, what's the absorption of the market, occupancy, key deals that have happened, growth, new construction in the market, sale and lease comps, market occupancy, competitor analysis, and any current listings. We're trying to get an idea of where it's located and what's going on in the market and why the deal that we're buying makes sense in this market. We then dive a little bit deeper just to the property itself. And this is where we'll do details about the property and its specs. 
uh, what makes the property valuable to a tenant, therefore valuable to investors. Think things like square footage, total amount of office space to warehouse ratio, the age of the roof, construction type, things like that. So we're really just specking out what type of building they're investing in. Then we'll dive into a tenant overview, which are the details and characteristics of current and future tenants. Are the current tenants locked in at below market rates? Are there opportunities to take them up? Are the tenants good credit tenants that we want to keep? Or are there some that we know will that will eventually replace? But we just want the investor to really know who are the current tenants? Who are the future tenants going to look like? What are they going to pay? And what lease terms might look like to get those tenants? And we also just want to understand the riskiness of the tenants from a credit perspective. Next, we'll go through and we'll discuss the sources and uses of funds. So this is where is the money coming from? What are the terms of that money? And how will it be used during the investment period? So uh, what are the terms that we're going to get from a bank? What are the terms on the equity that we're offering for investors to put in? Is there any other class of equity like a MES structure or some type of second lien? So that's just what are all the funds? How are all the funds in the capital stack made up? And what are they being used for? So once we know what the terms are, then how are those funds being allocated, i.e., some of those will go towards the purchase price, some will go to CapEx, some might go to an acquisition fee. So you wanna know what the capital stack is and what are the terms of that. And then you wanna know where all the money's going once it comes in. Next, we'll do the financial summary. So if all goes as planned and it rarely ever works out as exactly planned, what can investors expect in return? We provide our ideal return as well as a base return to get realistic expectations. So we'll show a range, we'll show a base and a high case. We'll also provide visibility on the length of the ownership. And we'll usually show that as a five-year plan, a seven-year plan, or a 10-year plan. Again, investors, uh, it's funny, investors don't mind um, often sometimes how long we hold it if things are working out well, but they still like to see things in kind of lengths of time that they can kind of wrap their mind in. I, just as a side note, I think it's kind of interesting. Investors love getting money back, especially if you've made a good sale, but they're often the first people to call the next morning saying, I need to give you this money back and get it reinvested. I don't want it sitting in my account. And so I've always just found it interesting that people like to know they're going to get their money back in five years but they don't want it back so that they can hold it for a long period of time. It's almost like they want it back so they can just see the money hit their account, see that everything you said was real, and then give it right back. And so again, side tangent, but just something that we've experienced over the years. We go through the partnership terms. So what's the legal structure? Is it an LLC, an LP? What's the waterfall structure? How will the money flow? while owning the investment? What are the risks that we see? What are the fees that are being charged, both fees that Fort Capital is taking and fees that maybe a third-party vendor is taking? And then what is Fort Capital's skin in the game? So how much money are we putting up? Are we having to guarantee any loan? A lot of investors just want to know what's in it for Fort Capital and what are the risks that Fort Capital is taking by doing this deal? That's really just boils down to are we aligned or are we not? Again, if you're a first time person doing a deal, that is going to be one of the things that you'll probably end up talking about the most. 
Not that you don't talk about it when you're doing your hundredth deal, but you're probably doing your hundredth deal because you've been very successful. You have a track record of uh, doing well with your investments. And so not that skin in the game doesn't matter as much then, but when you have no track record and you have nothing to point to, people really want to know earlier on in your career, how much are you willing to put into this to make this work? And if it doesn't work, what's the pain that you're going to feel? Um, that's kind of a maybe a weird way to put it, but I think you get my point. It's alignment. We'll then go through, a, we'll put our models in and our return summary. So this is where we put our detailed performa that shows the cash flow summary and inputs over the intended holding period. Think operations, expenses, reserves, sunk costs, financing, fees, et cetera. And what we'll usually do is show a long form performa that if people really want to look at the whole five years, how it breaks out, but we'll also pull out a couple buckets that just give the highlights of what that performa is showing. And then lastly, we will show property photos and we'll show a map of where it stands in a market. So we'll go out, we'll take detailed pictures, um, and then we'll put a map in that shows kind of where the property is located to things that people can reference. I think one little note on the photos, I, we used to do this because we'd put a lot of photos in the in the package and then we would send it to investors and then they would call us back and they'd be like, well, we don't really know what we're looking at when we're looking at the photos. So one little detail that we've added, again, nothing earth shattering, is putting a little description or summary under each photo of what the investor is actually looking like. You'd be surprised um, how many times we get asked that. So in conclusion, I hope today has been useful how to look at a deal, how to underwrite that deal, the things to think about. Obviously, we aren't, we, this is just one way of looking at deals. This is how we've done it. Had I done this podcast even five years ago, my message might've been different. And if I'm going five years down the road, it might be different again, not different from the core principles of what you need to do to underwrite a deal. But as the years go by and you do more, you just get smarter and you ask yourselves the right questions and you continue to dial in on what to look at. And that only comes through experience. So when I say it might change, isn't that the core fundamentals change of what you need to look at, but maybe some of the more detailed questions that you ask yourself. And then secondly, I hope that once you've underwritten that deal and you are ready to take it to your investors, that this gave a little bit more of a color, uh, this painted more color on how to put it together in a presentation that might delight your investors in a way that they want to see it. If you want to get another uh, way to understand what we talked about in this podcast, you can go to www.fortcapitallp.com, go to how we think. And we've actually written these out in blog posts as well that you're more than welcome to download and use. And if you want even more than that, feel free to send us an email and we'll send you templates of our investor memo and some of our underwriting materials so that you can use them uh, to get better on your end. Um, and if you do do that and you uh, see some things that we're missing, poke holes in it and send it back our way. I would love to, to learn from you. So thanks for joining me today for this episode and I'll see you next week. Thanks. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. 
Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.